We are starting this series, like I said, uh, Kindred, like what was said, Kindred, talking about our tribe, talking about our family, talking about our tradition. And uh, this is the first of uh, message, first in six, that we'll be having on this. So if you have your Bibles, turn to, what am I reading here? Uh, Deuteronomy. <laughs> All right, Deuteronomy. And uh, I'll read from chapter 5. Verse 15, we'll have two, cha- two uh, chapters here, we'll also, I mean two uh, passages here. I'll also be reading from 1 Corinthians 11, if you want to be turning there. And we're just kind of trying this out. It's on the screen if you don't have a Bible. But we're, we've been encouraged to read it from the Bible, so we're all turning to it, and we'll see how this goes. I don't know. But uh, the Lord says this, remember. Everybody say remember. 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 remember to remember. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt. And that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Remember, do not forget what God has done in the past. And then in 1 Corinthians, uh, we have a passage that says this. The first two verses of chapter 11, Paul says, Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. And just know there the importance of having examples. People who are... are Leaders who are looking like Christ and, and can encourage others to live like that. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. And then Paul says, I praise you for remembering me and everything and for holding to the traditions just as I pass them on to you. Note the importance of traditions. He praises them for holding fast to these traditions. But I want you to realize... Oh, no, I, that, that's what we're in there. Okay, uh, then it goes down to verse 23. And this is a passage that we usually read for communion, but you'll see it has an important application here. Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. And most scholars agree that Paul's not talking about a direct revelation that he got. He received it from the Lord mediated by others. Uh, he met with the apostles to make sure that his, his teaching was the same as theirs and he tapped into their tradition. So he received it, and then he passed it on. And what he passed on was this tradition. The Lord Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, took the bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Remember me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Note the importance of remembering there. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup... Whenever you remember me, he's saying, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The way we proclaim the Lord's death when we're taking the Lord's Supper is by remembering him. One of the ways we proclaim what God is doing now is by remembering what he did in the past. The importance of receiving and passing on a tradition. Pray with me here for a moment. Abba Father, I thank you for every person in this auditorium, and I... Every person listening through the podcast or television, by any means. And I, God, I pray that you open up our ears and our hearts, our very soul, to receive your word in a deep and profound way. And I'm especially praying, God, that you use this to develop in us, God, a sense of being part of your collective bride, your collective body. Build a, an usness, a, a unity, a solidarity here. That we're not just a collection of individuals coming together to listen to a message, but God, we're a body. We're connected. And you have a unique, a unique, beautiful call on us. For those who are listening who are part of other bodies, other congregations, I pray the same for them. Use it, Lord God. Infuse it with your spirit, because only your spirit can do this. 
In Jesus' name we pray. And all of God's people said, Amen. 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 Uh, you find in the New Testament that there is a critique of traditions. When you're talking about human traditions, Jesus, for example, confronted the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees because they had human traditions that were getting in the way of their seeing what God was doing. Traditions can be a real negative thing when people hang on to them and uh, they obstruct what God's doing. So there's this negative side of traditions, but there's also, and it's important to see this, a positive side to traditions. You find throughout the Bible, God encourages his people to remember, as we saw a little bit earlier. Remember. You find throughout the Bible, there's this importance of, of being a people who are anchored in history. God is always calling us people to bear witness, not just to what he's doing in the present, to, but to what he's done in the past. In fact, what he's doing in the present is connected to what he did in the past. And we proclaim what God's doing in the present by remembering what he did in the past. Throughout the Bible, you find this importance of receiving and passing on a tradition, of, of being aware that you belong to something that's much bigger and much older than yourself. Uh, we at Woodland Hills Church have not done that very much, frankly. We haven't done that very well. Beginning about two years ago, we began to sense that we need to start lining up with this aspect, this truth that's revealed in the Word. And so last year, we did this series called Tapestry. You remember that? We talked about four different strands of the church tradition that uh, have, to some degree, been part of our identity, that affected us and impacted us. And so we talked about the Reformation and the Pietistic tradition and the Chrismatic tradition. And we spent two weeks on the Anabaptist tradition because that's the tradition that has more than any other impacted us and formed us. We've just kind of grown in that direction. And so what we want to do in this series is... Go deeper with that. Explore more deeply this Anabaptist tradition. Every week we'll be looking at a distinctive thing among the Anabaptists, but you're going to see that uh, that distinctive thing among the Anabaptists is also a distinctive thing of Woodland Hills Church. If you've been here for any length of time, when we talk about the Anabaptists, we're talking about ourselves. It's not because we tried to sound like the Anabaptists. It's just that we have grown in that direction and realized that that, in fact, is the, the tribe and the tradition that we are most lined up with. I feel a real sense of importance on this, that what God wants to do here at Woodland Hills Church and through Woodland Hills Church is really connected to this. Uh, it's important that we are tapped into something bigger and older than ourselves. And so today what I want to do is kind of set up the following weeks when I talk about the distinct aspects of the Anabaptists, and I want to do that by talking about what is Anabaptism, and why are we doing this series? Why is this important? Um, and so, since it's about Anabaptism, we're entitling this message, Anna what? Because we're answering that question. Anna what? Well, Anabaptism, you'll see. Uh, to understand the Anabaptists, uh, they started in the uh, early 16th century, but to understand what they're about, we've got to go back much, way, way farther than that, and go to the 4th century. Because in the 4th century, the Emperor Constantine allegedly converted to Christianity. I say allegedly because it's not clear whether he really did or not. I'm not the judge of his heart, so I can't say that. But I can say that whether it was a genuine conversion or not, he still thought and acted like a pagan. He ruled the empire after his conversion, just as he ruled it before his conversion. He still assassinated people that he was paranoid of, thinking that they were going to try to take over his, his rule. Um, 
he, he just was pagan through and through. But he, for various reasons, just came to the conclusion that Jesus, or seems to have come to the conclusion that Jesus was the true God, or at least the greatest God. Uh, and so uh, he treated Christianity the way that emperors have always treated religions, pagan religions. And he really, in the process, made Christianity out to be a pagan religion. And so, for example, if you want to court the, the deity's favor, uh, and you certainly do want to court the deity's favor because you trust the deities to give you military victory and to bless your land. In fact, Constantine allegedly converted because he allegedly had a vision uh, where Jesus was going to help him win this battle. I, I myself don't think it was a, a genuine vision. It was the first time Jesus was ever associated with military victory, but that's how pagans always thought about the gods. And so he wanted to build temples to this God. And so we find all over the place uh, these temples being built. And he calls them churches. Before then, the people were the church. Because in the New Testament, the people are the church. But now the church became a building that was erected to the deity. And now, now people go to church. And we still talk that way to this day, unfortunately. Uh, because uh, the emperors have always been courting uh, the religion to get the favor with the gods, they would fuse the interest of the religion with the state, consult the, the various priests uh, as to whether they should go into battle or what, whatnot. And so Constantine, thinking like a good pagan, he fuses uh, Christianity with the state. And then he throws a lot of money at, Christ, at, at the church and a lot of political power to the church. And because of that, overnight, or almost overnight, the church went from being a little persecuted minority which it had been for three centuries, and now it becomes the popular thing to be. Uh, if the emperor favors this religion, well, then people are going to start flocking to that religion. And so uh, overnight, this, this thing just explodes. Christianity goes from being about 10% of the population before Constantine uh, until within seven decades, it becomes the official religion of the Roman Empire. With all these people you know, just coming into the church uh, they, of course, don't have a chance to, with this big population coming in, to be taught right, and so they still think like pagans. And, and so Christianity becomes virtually a pagan religion overnight. You can really see this in the way that Jesus is depicted before and after. It's really interesting to, to compare the art. So before Constantine, Jesus was usually depicted along the lines of, of a, a shepherd. Here's the gentle shepherd, the caring shepherd carrying the lost sheep. Uh, he was depicted as a, a servant, as a, a crucified uh, Messiah. But after Constantine, Jesus becomes depicted as a warrior, even as an emperor. This is, he's wearing uh, military garb. That, that was the military dress that the soldiers wore. And he's holding the cross, but he's holding it as a sword, as, as a weapon. And Jesus now becomes this cosmic king, the cosmic emperor. And changes everything. Changes everything. Because we always conform to the God that we worship. And so before Constantine, people trusted the power of self-sacrificial love to change the world, to spread the gospel. But after Constantine, they start trusting the power of the sword to conquer the world for Jesus. Uh, before Constantine, uh, the church saw itself as the servant of the world, the foot washers of the world. But now, the church sees itself as the army that's going to conquer the world. Before Constantine... Uh, the cross was uh, something that we're supposed to follow, an example of how we're supposed to live. But after Constantine, the cross becomes a symbol of war. They put the cross on the banners that they march into war with. Before Constantine, to call Jesus Lord meant you are committing to uh, following his life, living uh, uh, as an imitation of his life. He becomes our example. That's what it means to confess Jesus is Lord. But after Constantine, to call Jesus Lord it means you call him your king, right? And... and he, Therefore, he's the one that you're supposed to fight for. 
Before Constantine, people understood that the Christian faith was about a, a transformed life. It involved beliefs, of course, but the important thing is that we're, we're to live in a way that manifests the gentle, self-sacrificial character of God. But after Constantine, well, Christianity becomes pretty much like the pagans, pagan religions, where the important thing is not about your life, it's about what you believe. You believe the correct doctrine, and it's about spreading that doctrine, because that's what keeps people out of hell. And so you want to conquer the world in the name of that doctrine. Everything changes. But see, while most at the time, in fact, most throughout history, saw this Constantinian transformation of the church as a positive thing. Yay, Christianity finally won. We're no longer a persecuted minority. You know, now we can take over the world. They saw this as a positive thing. The Anabaptists saw this as a terrible thing, a tragedy, something that was absolutely catastrophic because what happened... When Constantine gave the church political power and threw all that money at it, is that it completely transformed the essence of what the church was. It, it gutted the church, for, uh, gutted the kingdom out of the church. The Anabaptists saw everything was completely transformed. This is the church that was going to conquer the world in Jesus' name. The church that persecuted people, put people to death. Uh, what the Anabaptists saw was that the kingdom had been subverted. So what others saw as being an act of God giving uh, Constantine this power, the Anabaptists saw that as the, as the work of the devil. Now, there was throughout history, always, you see a, a strand of believers throughout history who dissented from the institutional church. This is the church militant and triumphant. You probably maybe have heard that expression. The church victorious. Well, there's always been dissenters throughout history saying, that is not what Jesus came to do. That's not the kingdom that Jesus inaugurated. There's always been a strand throughout history of people who saw, who read the Bible and saw that the kingdom is supposed to look like Jesus. It's supposed to be a corporate version of Jesus, and the institutional church, when it's putting people to death, doesn't look like Jesus. And these dissenters uniformly have been persecuted by the institutional church. Anyone who preached outside of the authority of the institutional church was persecuted, and more often than not, they were put to death. You find examples of whole towns who, who came to believe what someone was preaching outside the authority of the church, and the whole town is slaughtered. The Anabaptists are the first dissenting group that survived to tell about it. The Anabaptists were the first who stood up and said, that institutional church, that Christendom, Church militant, triumphant, that supposedly victorious. That is not the true church. That, and they were persecuted. They were, they were put to death. We'll see that in a, in a second here. But they survived and passed on the tradition, and it's with us to this day. And it is that tribe of dissenters that most express, that best express the heart of Woodland Hills Church. Uh, they express what we're about, the, the unique, distinct convictions that, that, that we have. They feel like the tribe that we're to be affiliated with, it's Anabaptists. So let me, let me tell you a little about the history of these Anabaptists. They arose in the early 1500s. Uh, in the early 1500s, there's a lot of buzz going on about Reformation and change. Uh, everyone saw that the church was corrupt, and uh, people were increasingly, as more and more people were, were able to read, they saw that uh, in fundamental ways, the church at the time doesn't line up with the, the model of the church we have in Scripture. So there's a lot of talk about Reformation. Luther nails his 95 theses to the Wittenberg door in 1517. Now, he's still inside the church, the Catholic church, but with, inside the Catholic church, they're trying to change it in fundamental ways. And then in 1519... 
this fiery priest named uh, Ulrich Zwingli, Zwingli, comes to Zurich, Switzerland. And uh, he is put in charge of this large church in Zurich, Switzerland. He gathers around him other priests and other students of the Bible, very educated people. Some of these folks knew four or five languages. Um, and they gather together and they start having discussions about Reformation. They, they talk about, uh, should the church really be too, too closely associated with the state? Because it's supposed to look like the kingdom of God, and the kingdom of God doesn't have anything to do with the kingdoms of this world. They begin to question, should there be priests, official priests, because all believers are called to be priests. They begin to question whether we should be baptizing infants, because uh, they saw in the Bible that baptism was the first act of discipleship that brought you into the church. They begin to question whether uh, Christians should ever engage in violence, because Jesus tells us to put down the sword and never retaliate and to love our, our enemies. Uh, they begin to question uh, the way that the church has been reading the Bible. Shouldn't we be read it, reading it in a Christ-centered way? They begin to question whether there should be a law that re- requires people to tithe because tithing was an Old Testament doctrine, but it's not repeated in the New Testament, at least not to Gentiles. They're questioning all these things. Zwingli and these comrades. Three of these comrades you need to know about because they're the founders of the Anabaptist movement. Felix Mons is one, Conrad Grable, and Simon Stumpf. And as they're talking about this over a couple of years, uh, attention begins to develop. The tension is this. Uh, Felix Mons and his crowd, they want to start implementing these things. They, they're saying, look, we see it clearly in the Word, and we're feeling God calling us to establish this church. The trouble was that Zwingli, uh, he, 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 was in, he had a lot of authority. He was part of the, the city council. And he had the most to lose by this, and so he was saying, well, slow down now. A change takes time. He at one point tried to preach against tithing as a law, and the city council just called him on the carpet, slapped his hand, said, you don't do that. Because remember, at this time, the church and the state are fused, so if you're not tithing, you're not paying your taxes. And the city council don't like it when preachers are telling people not to pay their taxes. So he gets in some trouble. And so now he puts his foot on the brake. And maybe he was just being cautious or maybe he was being cowardly, but Felix Mons and Conrad Grable and uh, Simon Stumpf, they, they think he's, he's being cowardly. We've got to take a stand here. So they start having house meetings in, in, in uh, churches in different houses, like the New Testament does. And they start doing, talking the Reformation, talking in these different houses without Zwingli. And then in 1525, January 21st, uh, Simon Stumpf asks Conrad Grable, will, will you baptize me? Now, that is breaking the law because any religious act outside of the authority of the church is breaking the law, so you can be punished severely for this. But uh, Grable says, of course, I will baptize you. So he baptizes Stumpf, then Stumpf baptizes him, then the whole house church gets baptized, then other house churches start getting baptized, and boom, we have ourselves a movement. The birthday of the Anabaptist movement is, is most scholars regarded as, as being January 21st, 1525. It grows spectacularly. Now, the city council doesn't like this. Zwingli doesn't like this. Uh, they, they start arresting these folks, telling them that you know, they imprison them for a certain length of time, and, and the times get longer and longer as they arrest them. But they, they, they tell them to repent of this heresy and to stop preaching this heresy, but the Anabaptists won't shut up. And so, because it's spreading so fast, they decide in uh, 1526... Actually, it was uh, 1525, I believe, that um, they need to pass a law that says anybody who's baptized uh, will be put to death. And anybody who preaches 
and a baptism will be put to death. Um, this was the birth of what's called the Radical Reformation. They were radical. They would not shut up. Now, this is what they were known for. It, this Anabaptism, the title means to be baptized again. Anna means again, and baptism, of course, is baptism. In the Greek, it literally means to immerse. And so uh, their opponents said that you are baptizing again, and that's a heresy. That's why we're going to kill you, which they didn't think was a heresy. Kind of funny if you think about it. Um, now, the Anabaptists didn't like that title because they said, no, when we, when we baptize, we're baptizing for the first time. This isn't a, a baptism again. This is the first baptism. But the opponent's title stuck, and so they were called Anabaptists, and, that, and they've been called Anabaptists uh, throughout all time up to this day, the Anabaptist movement. And they still don't like that title. Um, it, it is the main thing that they were persecuted for, the main thing they were known for, but as a matter of fact, it wasn't by any means their only distinctive or even their most important distinctive. In his book, uh, Stuart Murray uh, wrote this book called Naked, The Naked Anabaptist. I wrote the foreword to it. It's a fantastic book. We ha- had all of our covenant partners read this book. And I encourage everybody who's a part of Woodland Hills, if this is your spiritual body, to get that book. And as you read this, you'll get a great introduction uh, to Anabaptism. A very honest, it's called Naked because he, he's not trying to make it look all polished, whatever. He admits when there's shortcomings in the movement. Um, uh, but you'll also see there a real good description of Woodland Hills Church because uh, their distinctives are our distinctives. And he says in this book that the core of the Anabaptist movement wasn't about the baptism. Uh, that just expressed the core. The core is, it really is captured in a slogan by Hans Dunk uh, when he says, No one can know Jesus who does not follow him in this life. And then he adds, no one can follow him in this life unless they know Jesus. Because knowing Jesus is what empowers us and transforms us to be able to live a Jesus-looking life. That is the heart of the Anabaptist movement. That cuts to the core of the Constantinian paradigm, the church militant and triumphant, that says it's all about what you believe. Uh, and and uh, you can, it's not about living in a way that, that looks like Jesus. This, the, the, the radical edge of the Anabaptist movement, what got to them in so much trouble was that they believed that to follow Jesus means you've got to follow Jesus. It comes down to that. They took seriously the call to live like Jesus lived and to live like Jesus taught. This was the only group that really took seriously the, the, the Sermon on the Mount. They saw the Sermon on the Mount as our Magna Carta. Others would say, Luther said, for example, that the Sermon on the Mount is there primarily to convict us of our sin so we know we need a Savior. Others said the Sermon on the Mount is for a future dispensation. Others said the Sermon on the Mount is for the clerics, the, the, the priests, but not for the laity. We've got to be practical. You can't expect lay people to actually try to live like Jesus. But the, the Anabaptists said, no, this is the very essence of the church. This is what we're called to do. This is what we're called to be. Uh, so they were the only ones who took seriously Jesus' radical teachings uh, to, to follow him, to pick up the cross. They were the only ones who took seriously Jesus' teaching when he said that, that uh, love your enemies, that you may be called the children of God. That, so that you may be called the children of God. I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father. The Anabaptists saw this as loving your enemies and, and refusing to engage in violence as the precondition for being called a child of God which really ticked off everybody else because they wanted to use the sword, and this would mean that they aren't really children of God. You can see why they got in so much trouble. This was uh, the Anabaptist movement, the tribe of dissenters that said we're supposed to look like Jesus and we're called to follow him in every way. The thing exploded. Uh, they, their, their attempts to squash it... Could you hand me my water? I'm going to do a, 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 a Rubio here for a moment. <laughs> Those who have ears to hear, let them hear. Um, 
the, the thing exploded, and um, the, the attempts to put them in prison to tell them to shut up, it didn't work. And so the city council of uh, Switzerland said, we've got to up the ante. And so they said, anybody who's baptized again will be put to death. And anyone who preaches it will be put to death. And it wasn't too long before that began to be implemented. Uh, shortly after, in early January 1526, um, Felix Mons is arrested. They say, you've got to desist from this preaching, but he won't do it. They say, you have to repent of this teaching, but he won't do it. So they take him out in a boat into Lake Zurich, and they, well, what they would do to the Anabaptists is they'd put a bar behind their knees and put their elbows by that bar. I can't even get down that low anymore. And they would tie them up like that and then throw them over the boat, and they'd sink to the bottom. If you want to be baptized, well, we'll show you how to be baptized, and they would drown them. Uh, the movement continued to grow. And so at some point, one city council decided they had to make a, a more severe example out of Anabaptists. So they, they called Michael Sadler, who was one of the forefathers of the Anabaptist movement. He was the one who wrote the Schleitheim Confession, uh, which is considered the first confession of faith of the Anabaptist, a big leader in the church. And uh, to make an example out of him, they didn't just want to drown him. They, with hot tongs, ripped out his tongue. Um, so he couldn't preach on the way to being executed. And then as they marched him through the street, they, with hot tongs, ripped off parts of his skin. Well, I sent a message, you don't want to follow these Anabaptists. And then they tied him to this pole and put wood underneath it and set it on fire, and he died a horrible, slow, torturous death. But it didn't stop the Anabaptist movement. It continued to grow. And in the next 50 years or so, uh, the Anabaptists were just... Thousands and thousands and thousands of Anabaptists were martyred. The, the, the Catholics, the Lutherans, the Calvinists, they all, when they weren't fighting one another, they were fighting the Anabaptists. They all agreed on one thing, we've got to kill the Anabaptists. And so some were burned alive, others were uh, drowned, uh, others were tortured. Some had to watch their families be killed before they were killed. And when you read the accounts of these deaths, uh, someone wrote a book on this in the uh, early 17th century called The Martyr's Mirror. And it's a beautiful book. It, it, it captures this tradition of dissenters who were persecuted by the official church in, in horrendous ways all throughout time. But then the, the largest group is the Anabaptists. And as they were being killed, they would bless their enemies. They, would, uh, uh, they, they refused to retaliate. They refused to defend themselves. They refused to hate. They would uh, express love towards their enemies. They'd preach the gospel to the end if they didn't have their tongues ripped out. Um, and, and, and the way that they died... Um, it, it itself was a witness. That's what the word martyr actually means. And many others came to the faith, so the thing continued to grow. It's a beautiful movement. It's a Jesus-looking movement. That, that looks like Jesus. That looks like, like the kingdom of God. Now, here, here's why we're interested in this here at Woodland Hills Church. Um, we have been looking for, I felt in the last couple of years, the need to look for a tribe. We even had a prophetic word, a prophetic word that we think was authentic, that said, you're not to do it alone. Don't try to accomplish what I'm calling you to do alone. Um, so we're looking for a tribe. This is not at all about us changing anything. We feel we are exactly where we're supposed to be. Uh, our beliefs and our practices and the way we do church, if you attend here, you're not going to notice any difference. It's not about us changing anything. It's about us finding a tribe that, that has the same kind of convictions that we have, looking for a tribe. I, I said this several months ago in January that um, Woodland Hills Church shares the historic Orthodox faith of the Church Universal. We, we share that, the Orthodox creeds. But there are some distinct things that we believe that are not at all typical, distinct aspects of the gospel that are not at all typical for the church in America, uh, certainly for the evangelical church in America. 
And so with our awareness about these distinctives and as we're becoming more out loud about them, we feel the need to conform to this teaching of Scripture that I started with. That we need to be a people who receive and pass on a tradition. We need to be a people who are anchored in history. We need to be able to have a tribe that we can look to and say, there's us uh, in, in history. We need to be a people who proclaim what God is doing now by remembering what he's done in the past. We need to be a, be a people who bear witness to, to the, the fact that, that the gospel we preach didn't start today. It has a long history uh, throughout, throughout the world. And, and while we thank God, God's always worked through people where, where they're at. And so we thank God for what he's done through the Catholics and through the Lutherans and through the Calvinists and through all the other different groups. We praise God for that. But see, it's only the Anabaptists who rejected the Constantine paradigm as a whole. Only the Anabaptists rejected that whole model of church triumphant uh, and, and uh, militant. The reformers, they tweaked the doctrines of that kind of power over church, and they did it in some great ways that I'm very thankful for. But only the Anabaptists said, no, the paradigm itself is off because we're called to come under people and serve, not to try to come over people and impose. Uh, we always say around here at Woodland Hills Church that we're called to love our enemies. We're called to live like Jesus and serve like Jesus. And that's what the Anabaptists did. Uh, we always say that we're called to swear off violence. And that's what the Anabaptists did. Uh, we always say that we're, we're, we're called to read the Bible through the lens of Jesus. Uh, with our, that Jesus is the central revelation of God. And that's what the Anabaptists taught. And so it's the Anabaptists that feel like they're our tribe. And that that's the one that we're to align. We, we just notice we didn't expect this. We didn't plan this. It's just as we've grown, we all of a sudden realize this is the tribe that we are in line with. And so right now we're weighing the options. The Anabaptism is a a title. It's not a denomination. It's a a genre of theology that I just described. It's like the word evangelical. It covers a lot of different expressions, a lot of different fellowships. And so we're looking at, you know, under the, the rubric of Anabaptism, you'll find a wide spectrum of beliefs, all the way from the Amish over here, to some very progressive uh, thinkers over there. That's why some folks, if you've only confronted the real conservative Anabaptists, when you hear that, you know, we're thinking about aligning with the Anabaptists, you start worrying that we're going to have women wearing bonnets and whatever, you know. No, it's, it's a, a very diverse kind of group. The largest of these groups is the Mennonite Church USA. Um, uh, the Brethren in Christ is another Anabaptist group. That's the, the, the denomination that the Meeting House is affiliated with, and we have a lot of close relationships with the meeting house. Uh, and so we're weighing our options. We're just trying to discern. We really don't know where we're going to go yet. We're just trying to discern this. Uh, it's even made the news. The, the Mennonite World Review last week uh, did a news article on how we're seeking a tribe, megachurch ways its Anabaptist options. Isn't that cute? <laughs> but see, this is actually newsworthy because while we are Anabaptists to the core of our being with a passion... Um, we're not at all Anabaptists in any other way. And we'll see here in a moment that that actually turns out to be very significant. So why are we looking for a tribe? Three reasons here. Number one, we've already covered it. We're looking for a tribe because we're supposed to be connected to something bigger than ourselves. And not in a paper kind of way, in a meaningful kind of a way, in a relational uh, kind of a way. We're, 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 the people of God are always supposed to be receiving and passing on a tradition. They're always supposed to have heroes they can look up to, examples that they can follow. Uh, the people of God are always supposed to be, have a history and live in awareness that, that, that we are part of something that's bigger than ourselves and that is broader than ourselves. 
we, we have to, we're called to be a people who can point to people in history and say, that's us in the past. To make it very clear that this vision of a, of a, of a Jesus-looking God and a Jesus-looking kingdom and the call to live a, a countercultural life and to put down the sword, that we didn't invent this. It didn't start with us. No, this has got a long and cherished tradition throughout history, and you can point to it. And so to conform to what the body of Christ is supposed to be in Scripture, we need to find ourselves a tribe as we look around. When I, when I look at the church militant and triumphant, God did some good things through it. Yes, praise God for that. It wasn't all bad. But as I look at this church militant and triumphant, this Constantinian church, this church that tried to, thought was going to take over the world in Jesus' name and that was willing to use the sword to execute heretics and, and to kill Muslims and eventually kill other Christians. As I look at that, I can't say that's us in the past. I, I, I don't want to point anyone to that and say that's, that represents anything that we're about. See, when I look at the Anabaptists, they're not perfect. If you read Murray's book, he's honest with this. They're not perfect. They're human. They got warts and bad breath, just like the rest of us. But, but you'll find there that the heart of what we call the kingdom of God is there. And the core convictions that we call the kingdom of God is there. And we can point to that. Several years ago, I was in a debate with this guy. And he pointed to the horrendous things that the church has done throughout history, all the killing. And he was arguing, using this as proof, that Christianity wasn't true. And I'm so glad that I was able to point to one strand of the church tradition that, that that's not true of. The Anabaptist tribe is the only strand of the church tradition that doesn't have blood on its hands. They were willing to die, but they weren't willing to kill. Because they realized that to follow Jesus means it's more important to be killed than it would be to kill someone else, even to defend your life. So that's the first reason. Second reason is this. We always teach around here that everything... In the kingdom, goes better when it's done in community. Because God is a relational triune God. He, he wires it into creation and certainly wires it into the kingdom that everything goes better when it's done in community. And that's true of individuals, which is why there should not be any lone ranger Christians. We're all supposed to be associated with another body. But it's also true of churches. Churches can be lone ranger Christians if they're out there all by themselves. Every church needs to be connected to something bigger than itself, and everything in the kingdom works better when it's connected to something bigger than itself. There's things you can do when you're connected to something bigger than yourself that you can't do alone. For example, uh, the Mennonites have uh, an incredible disaster relief organization. They're, they're known for this. They've gotten awards for this. When, when, when disasters happen anywhere on the globe, they're often the first ones on the scene. They've been doing this for decades, and it's like a well-oiled machine. So when Katrina hit, the first ones on the ground are the Mennonites. And they're there, they've got resources, and they just come to serve because they understand how important it is to manifest the love of God to people who are hurting. I would love to be part of something like that, wouldn't you? Uh, to, to have that best part of us. And maybe some folks in our congregation would feel called to be part of that, uh, you know, to be on the roll so that when disaster hits in your area, boom, you get a call and you can leave what you're doing and become part of this. All, they also have a, an incredible uh, peacemaking team, Christian uh, peacemakers, and these folks go all over the globe, wherever there's conflict, and they try to bring peace. Because Jesus called us not just to avoid violence, he calls us uh, to be peacemakers, to make peace. And so these folks go at risk to their own life into conflict zones, and they try to bring people together and talk, and to avoid war, or if they're already in war, to get out of the war. And they go there without defenses. They go there just to manifest the love of God. Some of you maybe remember in 2005, there was a group that, in Iraq that was taken hostage. You read about this? Uh, Tom Fox was one of them, and he was beheaded on the Internet, had his head cut off. It was just brutal. But see, that team was a, was a Mennonite peacemaking team. 
Uh, and that's what they do. And sometimes it's very costly. But that's why it's very kingdom. Um, I, I would love to be part of that. I'd love to support that. And, and, to, and maybe there will be people in, in our congregation who are called to, to be part of that team. But see, that, we could never do that on our own. But we can do it when we're associated and affiliated with something bigger than ourselves. You see what I'm saying? So uh, you asked the question, how can we help them and how can they serve us? Which, which brings, me to, brings me to the third reason why it's important to affiliate with a tribe. Um, we are asking the question, who would be most benefited by us joining them? Who can we serve? It's about how, they, how can they help us in carrying out the vision that God's given us, but how can we help them? Now, here's the thing, and this is, I think, just the most crazy thing, but it's a beautiful thing. In 2006, uh, the myth of my book, The Myth of the Christian Nation, was published, and it, it uh, caused quite a stir, and um, it got us on the radar screen of a lot of people. It got us on the radar screen of the Mennonites. And so I began to get all these invitations to speak to different Mennonite uh, uh, meetings and conferences and stuff. And I felt led by God to do that. In the last five years, the main groups I've spoken to outside of Woodland Hills have been the Mennonites. And um, uh, it's, it's been a really interesting thing because the reason they invited me was because they see in that book that we have the vision that they have. They've had it for 500 years. But we have a passion about it that they've kind of lost. And the way we articulate it is not the way they articulate it. And so it, it, there's, there's something they want to learn by that, so they invite me in to come and speak with them. At the same time, because we're on the radar screen um, of a lot of people, we've become aware that all around the globe there are individuals and groups that are getting this. They're waking up to the Jesus-looking God and the Jesus-looking kingdom and seeing that the Christendom triumphant model of the church was not the church that Jesus died for, that inaugurated, that the church is called to follow Jesus and live like Jesus and serve like Jesus. All over the place, people are getting this. And many of them are calling us increasingly. Every week now, we're getting people who are saying, can I somehow be tapped into you? And we're praying about what that relationship might look like. What, what, how are we supposed to lead and shepherd these people? We don't know yet, but it's a very cool and, and humbling thing to have happen. But I'm also seeing, as I'm talking with these Mennonites the last five years, I'm seeing this. That while this revolution is happening around the globe, as, as Christendom is, the church militant triumphant isn't so triumphant anymore. It's dying. And that's a good thing. And as it's dying, out of the rubble are rising these, these Jesus radicals. And they're looking for a home. They're looking for a tribe. They're looking for a tradition. But the folks who have the tradition, have this treasure, have had it for 500 years... Well, they're, they're kind of stuck. A lot of them are stuck. Partly because of the persecution they received early on. They kind of tended to become sort of sheltered in, in their own little pockets. And so they, they are kind of stuck in their own cultures. They're embedded in their own cultures. And they're not able to effectively receive this movement that's happening around the world. And here's where we come in. Uh, the word I've been given, I, I, God's burned it into my heart as I've gone to these different groups. Uh, the, it's hot. It feels hot to this day. The word is this. To the Mennonites and brethren in Christ and all others in the Anabaptist tribe, I'm saying, hold fast to this treasure that you've been given. Hold fast to this kingdom vision that you've been given. This beautiful, rare thing. That's, it's very uncommon. Hold fast to this and rekindle your love for this. I've seen that the fire in many of them has gone. They, they got too used to it. They, it's ordinary to them. And I'm calling them to Rekindle this fire and return to your first love and hold fast to this kingdom vision. 
Many are even walking away from this vision and just kind of blending in with the church, uh, being ordinary, in, absorbing the culture. And I'm saying, no, don't let go of these distinctives. They're beautiful. They're, they're important. Hold fast to them. But at the same time, as much as possible, let go of your human cultural stuff that is holding you in bondage, that's preventing you from welcoming people from a wide diversity of cultures into this tradition, into this tribe. Because if you can do this, hold fast to the kingdom and hold loosely to your, your, your cultural traditions, if you can do this, I believe the Anabaptist movement, it's, it's a movement whose time has come. Uh, if they can do this, this is going to be, this is a, 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 an ordained moment of God where they could see an influx these folks who are looking for a tribe and a home, it could, just, it, it could explode. It, it's it's going to happen anyways. The question is, will the Anabaptists be able to embrace it? Uh, and they can if they can let go of some of the cultural restraints that keep them from being open to it. But here's the thing about Woodland Hills. Here's our role. We embody what they need. Uh, and if you read the, that, that article I referred to earlier and read the comments after it, you'll see that a lot of people have said this. See, we're Anabaptists, and we have a passion that many of them lack, and, and, and we hold to it with a fervency, but we're not Anabaptists in any other respect. Our style, the way we do church, the way we carry ourselves, we're just very, very different. And see, what that shows, it's, and we're not the only ones who do this, by the way. There's others as well, but he's doing it here, that we, we, we are, are embody what it can look like to be Anabaptists with a passion, but without the Anabaptist culture. And that positions us as kind of a bridge, where, on the one hand, over here, there's folks who are getting this vision, this rare and beautiful vision, and uh, they're looking for a tribe, looking for a home, a tradition. And then, on the other hand, here's the tribe that has that tradition and has that history. But they're unable to welcome this tribe because some are walking away from it, some are, have grown cold to it, and some are in bondage to their culture. They can't welcome this group. Uh, and we're able to sort of be a bridge here. You know, God gave us this word uh, 10 years ago, longer than that, that, we're, that we are a bridge. Our identity is a bridge. And we've always understood that to be a bridge along ethnic lines and along socioeconomic lines and between the city and the suburb. We're a bridge. But it's becoming clear to me now that we're also a bridge in this way that we never anticipated. Because we, 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 we can call these people in and open ourselves up to them and they're looking for a tribe, and we're looking for a tribe, and these people are trying to make a home for these folks, and we're trying to make a home for these folks. Do you see how this kind of comes together here? And I don't know what's going to happen with all this, uh, but it's an exciting and beautiful uh, kind of a thing. Uh, just to, to be in this position where we can serve as this link. I was at a conference uh, several years ago, and this is an example of what I'm talking about. And, and I, I'm at this conference, and see, I'm talking about the kingdom, and you know how I Get when I talk about the kingdom, I get weird, and I get ADD, and I get fiery, and I start sweating, and I start spitting, and I get, you know, I get really worked up. And so I'm up there going crazy about this kingdom stuff. Uh, now, in the, among the Mennonites, and this is true of all the Anabaptist groups, they're so afraid of, of drawing attention to themselves. If you hang out with the Mennonites, they're, they're, you'll see a culture of humility and quietness and gentleness, and, and they're unassuming, and they don't want to draw attention to themselves. It's really beautiful. But they do it to almost to a fault so that the preachers are so afraid of entertaining or drawing attention to themselves that they purposely downplay any of their personality. They want the gospel to speak for itself. And so, well, this lady said their preaching can sometimes be quite boring because uh, they're afraid of entertainment. So I get up there and I 
Mr. Spastic, you know, he's kind of going nuts about all this stuff. And so not Mennonite. It's kind of jarring to them. It's like, whoa, 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 what, what, what? Uh, and so this lady comes up to me, this middle-aged lady, and, and she was so sweet. She goes, here's why it's really good for us to hear this, because you've got a fire that we've lost, and your fire kind of exposes how much we've lost it. Uh, that's one way you serve us. But also, you, you say all the things we believe. You, you know, you, you cast the vision that we've always held on to, and yet there's nothing else Mennonite about you. Uh, you're like anti-Mennonite. <laughs> you know, so you're, you're, uh, she said, you're a Mennonite on steroids <laughs> in terms of what you believe, uh, but you're completely anti-Mennonite on steroids in terms of the way you act, <laughs> your, your style. Our church is very, very much, doesn't look like most Mennonite churches, but see that the things we believe, the convictions we hold are thoroughly Anabaptist. And so that's what allows us to serve as this kind of bridge uh, I don't know how, where, how this is going to play out, but it feels in my heart to be big and huge and wonderful and beautiful. So what I want to ask you to do, if this is your spiritual body, is this. Number one, pray. Pray for the leaders of the church. Pray for the covenant partners in the church, that we get wisdom on this, that we get clarity on this, that we follow God's leading. We really don't have a script for this. We're going out into uncharted territory. Uh, we don't have a preset program on this. We are really open to whatever God wants to do. Uh, and so be, be praying for us. Secondly, if uh, this is your spiritual body, uh, see, Woodland Hills, if this is your home, then you are Woodland Hills. All of us are. And, and if we're going to play the role that God wants us to play, then we've all got to have that fire. Uh, to the degree that any of us are sitting on the sideline, it, it's going to hinder what we can do as a whole. We need each other to be sold out to this. And so I want to challenge you to get the fire, get the passion, get the vision for the kingdom. Uh, commit your life. If you're on the sidelines, get in the f- playing field. Start getting active. Start living out the kingdom. Maybe this volunteer, this volunteer thing that we advertised earlier, maybe that's the way to start. I don't know. But, but wherever you're at, surrender, all right? And, and, and be the fire. And the final thing, it may seem like a left turn, but it's, it's really not. If we're called to be this bridge, we is all of us. And so I want to challenge you to be a bridge, individually be a bridge. Maybe you can't be a bridge to Mennonites and people looking for a tribe, but wherever you are, whoever you know, wherever your position is, be a bridge there. I said this several weeks ago, and this is something God's really put on my heart uh, that, that we're supposed to be paying attention to this year, and that is we are all ambassadors of the kingdom. We're all ministers of reconciliation, which means if that's our primary identity, then we should always be having a... We're go-betweens between God and, and we're supposed to be bringing God to the world and, and, and the world to God. And, and, and so the question we need to ask is, who in your life are you reaching out to? We ought to all have at least one person, a non-believer or a sideline Christian whatever, that we're praying for, that we're uh, asking God for wisdom on how to relate to them in a way that would begin to draw them into the kingdom. Uh, we're all evangelists, all right? And so if, we're gonna, if our identity is a bridge and we are simply us together, then can I challenge you to be a bridge? Ask God to put on your heart somebody that you're supposed to be winning to the Lord uh, by how you live and by relating to them and by loving them. Hmm. All right, I'm going to close in prayer, praying that God would burn this into our hearts. And as I do, I'd like to ask the prayer teams to come forward. And if you're here uh, and have any need whatsoever, please come forward and pray with these folks. Uh, They love to minister to you and uh, pray with you. Abba, Father, it's exciting, it's humbling, it's uh, a little bit intimidating uh, to be in a a position like this, but I thank you for it, God, and I thank you for every person that you've called to be part of this body, 
And I pray, Lord, that you give us the fire, that you give us the passion, that we hold fast the kingdom, that we're not, give us the courage of our forefathers like Felix, Felix Mons and, and Michael Sattler who are willing to take a stand and to pay a price and to bleed for the kingdom. Give us their courage and their love for you. And God, help us to be a people who proclaim who you are by remembering what you've done in the past. And do your work here at Woodland Hills. This is your church, not ours. We give it to you. Have your way. As we leave this place, committed and surrendered to carrying out your will. In Jesus' name we pray. And all of God's people said one last time. Amen. God bless you guys. Go out and be the kingdom. Oh, hello. I, I didn't see you come in. Welcome to the addendums to Greg Boyd's sermon. Uh, I usually do this at my house, but I got so busy this weekend I didn't have time. So my good friend Trevor is here to do a few few extras uh, to the sermon here at the church's wonderful office with this bright, wonderful pillow that's so soft and cushy. Okay, I have two corrections and one little nuance uh, to today's message. Uh, Correction number one. I uh, said that uh, it was Simon Stumpf who asked uh, Grable to baptize him that started the, uh, the, it was the birthday of the Anabaptists on January 21, 1525. The reality was it was George Blorock uh, who asked Grable to baptize him, and then they turn around and uh, Grable baptized Blorock, no, Blorock, whatever, and that is what uh, got the, the, I don't know why I thought Simon Stumpf did it, he was a leader in the Anabaptist movement, but he wasn't there at that first meeting when they started the baptism, so I apologize for that mistake. I also made a mistake in saying that uh, Michael Stadler was martyred in January 1526, when in fact it was January 1527. So uh, I, this proves that I am not infallible, and you should always double-check uh, me, especially when it comes to historical details. I just kind of just, uh, it's not good. Um, then, uh, here, here's a, a nuance. I said that the Anabaptist tradition is the only tradition that doesn't have blood on its hands. And what I mean by that is that it's the only tradition that never officially sanctioned violence. Uh, I take the official stance of the early Anabaptists to be expressed in the Schleitheim Confession, which was uh, written in 1527, but you might want to check that, but I'm pretty sure it's uh, 1527. And there they swear off uh, the use of the sword for any purpose, and they're committed to nonviolence. Now, some people will argue against this uh, for this reason. Uh, there was this guy, uh, Jan van Leiden, as I recall. Uh, Johan van Leiden, something like that. And uh, uh, he, uh, he baptized adults, so in that sense he was an Anabaptist. Uh, he was also a, a fruitcake, and he was a nut job. He was insane, crazy. He thought he was the reincarnation of David. Uh, he reinstituted polygamy. Uh, he thought he was going to lead an uh, army into uh, an apocalyptic battle that would usher in the kingdom of God. Uh, unfortunately, he got quite a large following, and they, they finally were able to take over the town of Munster, Munster, Germany. Uh, and he reigned as King David in Munster, Germany, with, with a lot of wives from uh, 1535 to 1536. Finally, the Catholics decided that this guy is dangerous. They came in there, and they attacked the city, and there's a lot of bloodshed, and it was nasty and whatever. Now, some folks point to that and say, ah, look, at the early Anabaptists weren't committed to nonviolence. Um, I submit to you that this is a, a, an exception. It does not at all represent the, the mindset of the early Baptists. Uh, or the convictions of the early Baptists, this guy was a, a fruit job. And so don't, uh, exceptions shouldn't uh, uh, undermine. The general rule is that they were committed 
uh, to nonviolence. It's also the case that you can find examples of some peasants uh, in the Peasants' Revolt who uh, uh, were associated with Anabaptists who picked up the sword. But again, the official position that I take to be regarded uh, to express by the Sidem Confession is that they're committed to violence. And so I stand by my claim that the Anabaptist tradition is the only tradition that does not have uh, violence on its hands in any official capacity anyways. God bless you guys. Uh, I'll see you next week. Bye-bye.